0: talking about tumors with Ryan and Ryan. Today we're going to review the modern adjuvant chemotherapy regimens and the use of bisphosphamates in early breast cancer. So hopefully this will be a quick overview on the different chemotherapy regimens that you may encounter and hopefully provide some insight. Um, And as breast cancer can uh, recur many years after the initial diagnosis, it's helpful to know some of the regimens that have been used in the past. So when you see a patient, you'll understand what they've received and why they received it. So ever since the initial bandana CMF regimen, there's been attempts to improve upon this original treatment regimen. This is a story of small gains that have accumulated and significant improvements for patients. So although we mentioned the the estimated benefit of modern management is to reduce breast cancer related mortality by about thirty percent, this was not discovered all at once, and each individual adaptation update has added about. a few percent of overall survival and breast cancer-related survival in relationship to the prior era. The upshot of this is that we are providing better care, better survival, and reduced toxicity to patients than we had when we look back at the initial attempts at this in in the 1970s. Today's discussion will be limited to just chemotherapy and we're going to leave the HER2-based systemic regimens and hormone-based therapy into the later uh, appropriate lectures. Just briefly before going into the chemotherapy, I will mention that there's this amazing collection of meta-analyses by the EBCTG, the Early Breast Cancer Trials Group. And for almost every type of management, whether it's our generation of chemotherapy, our hormone therapy, our approach to radiation, and and the surgical approaches, there's been meta-analyses that have been published in this series within the Lancet. And I highly recommend you know being aware of these and utilizing these when you're thinking about what benefit you're having with the treatment you recommend. There's also a great review by um, Dr. Sperano that I'll include in the show notes as well that summarizes the advances of systemic therapy over the years. So commonly, the, the adjuvant chemotherapy regimens are broken into first generation, second generation, third generation. The first generation includes the CMF, which was the original bonded and Donna regimen. As I mentioned last episode, it, the initial landmark trial used 12 cycles of this chemotherapy, so about a year of treatment. However, subsequently, a follow-up trial used 6 cycles and found this to be equivalent to 12. You won't see CMF used too much nowadays, however... You may occasionally run into the situation where a patient is not a candidate for the more modern adjuvant therapies such as anthracyclines, which are cardiotoxic, or taxanes, which are, have significant neuropathy. If you do encounter a patient who has horrible neuropathy and CHF and is still a candidate for systemic therapy, you may still reach for CMF. So it's good to be aware of it and and the data behind it. So as anthracyclines such as doxorubicin made their way into many different disease sites for hematology and oncology, a regimen called AC, which was doxorubicin and cyclophosphamide, um was developed. And this was given for four cycles every 3 weeks apart, and this was found to be equivalent to six cycles of CMF. Although not necessarily less toxic than CMF, this was a preferred regimen as it did reduce the number of um the period of time spent on chemotherapy. And anthracyclines quickly became more and more popular in the management of early breast cancer. As many of you are likely aware, the main toxicity we worry about with anthracyclines is that of cardiac. There's two types of cardiotoxicity with anthracyclines. There's an early and a late complication. So early can present itself as acute heart failure, which can, you know, resolve, but not necessarily so. And then the late complication, which is cardiomyopathy that can even happen, you know, few years down the road, and this is typically permanent. Anthracyclines are an interesting chemotherapy. They have a few different mechanisms, and one of the well-described ones is the by the inhibition of topoisomerase 2, and also by the formation of free radical uh, oxygen. Both these mechanisms are going to be cell cycle specific, as free radicals are most likely to injure DNA while it's in the, in the replicating state, and topoisomerase is part of DNA replication. So both these mechanisms are primarily cell cycle specific, stopping cells from divi- um, DNA from dividing in the G2 and M phase, although the free radicals can have an effect on non-dividing cells as well. It's primarily thought that the free radical oxygen um, toxicity was what led to the cardiotoxicity and there was a key leading agent developed um, dextrozoxane that is thought to potentially give some benefit to preventing anthracycline-based toxicity. However, it's added benefit to reduce toxicity is modest at best and, and the reality is if you run into a patient developing cardiotoxicity with dexorubicin in the adjuvant setting. You're going to likely omit this from the remainder of your treatment course as these patients are being treated with curative intent and long-term cardiotoxicity can lead to significant morbidity. In order to monitor for this, we by default will be obtaining a echocardiogram prior to initiation of an anthracycline and generally will be repeating an echocardiogram after three months on the treatment. If you find that a patient is developing symptoms of CHF or has a drop in injection fraction below 50%, a well-developed field is cardio-oncology, and I encourage you to become familiar with your local cardio oncologists who are going to be very helpful in optimizing cardiac function, and preventing short-term and long-term herbs from cardiomyopathy from this medication. Cardiotoxicity is a cumulative effect. With each anthracycline that you consider, there's going to be a maximum total lifetime dose that's recommended. For doxorubicin, this is 450 milligrams per meter squared, and it's worth mentioning that the AC4 cycle regimen includes 240 milligrams per meter squared, so just under half, just over half of the total lifetime dose. And the total lifetime dose of epirubicin is 900 milligrams per meter squared. As patients with breast cancer do have an increased risk of a secondary breast cancer developing, it's important to be aware of if they've received prior systemic therapy and if that included anthracycline and how much anthracycline they've had in the past. Furthermore, when patients go into the metastatic site, there is a role for anthracyclines there. And once again, you want to be aware of what their prior lifetime dose of anthracycline has been. If a patient has progressed on multiple lines of chemotherapy in the MASTAC setting and you're having good response with an anthracycline, sometimes we will go beyond this total lifetime dose, but we do so cautiously, and that's usually where we're going to see that um having a role. Another major long-term toxicity of anthracyclines in the first-generation chemotherapies to be aware of aware of is the late-term complication of myelodysplastic syndrome or acute leukemia. This risk is compounded with their alkylators such as cyclophosphamide. The median time to onset is about 5 years after the systemic therapy, and it may arrive even as late as 20 years down the road, and 3% of patients can have this happen 20 years later. Another thing worth mentioning is that there are anthracyclines or vesicants, and if you have a peripheral, and if you have an IV that infiltrates during the time of administrating a systemic therapy, this does require urgent attention. Both a practical and a high-yield fact to know is how to manage extravascations of certain high-risk vesicant chemotherapies. And in the case of anthracyclines, the, the standard approach is to withdraw the IV. Uh, take a look at the site where the IV had infiltrated. For anthracyclines, you're going to use cold packs over the site of infiltration. For most infiltrations, we are going to recommend cold packs. However, there is the unique exception of the vinca alkaloids, in which case we're going to use heat to distribute the um away from the site of toxicity. Etoposide is also worth mentioning as a vesicant that no one really knows for sure, but typically recommend uh, providing heat as well. If a patient has infiltration from doxorubicin in addition to your local cold pack, you can consider providing systemic dextrazoxane or local DMSO, dimethyl sulfoxide, to reduce the risk of local toxicity and chelate away your doxorubicin. You can have severe skin necrosis if this isn't done timely. To try to circumvent the risk of extravasation of vesicants, hospitals and cancer centers have incorporated policies that utilize central access catheters, such as your ports or picks. But more recently, we've understood that ports or picks are not recommended in every patient. If someone has good peripheral IV access, we are capable of safely administering um, these agents, as the risk of infiltration is generally low. At my current location, we continue to require ports and picks for doxorubicin. However, at my prior site, I I utilized my chemo nurses, and I would ask of them if they thought that this patient had good enough venous access. If they thought so, then we were able to go forward, and I never ran into a complication from this. Moving into the second generation of systemic therapy, the technical definition of the second generation uh, systemic therapies came into play as taxanes made their way into our repertoire. So the taxanes used in adjuvant breast cancer are, are docetaxel and paclitaxel, and, and the combination of these with other systemic therapies did usher in the second generation regimens. The history of Pactotaxel is, is very uh, fascinating to me, and just briefly, this is a chemotherapy that was initially isolated from the Pacific yew tree as part of an NCI-directed effort to use natural resources found throughout the United States to see whether or not they can be cytotoxic and effective as chemotherapy agents. Pactotaxel is one of these agents that was identified, and its primary effect is as a microtubule stabilizer, which is also cell cycle-specific. So by preventing microtubules from breaking down, if we remember our cell division state, we look, requires microtubules to during the metaphase, and essentially cells get arrested at this phase. I encourage you to look at the chemical structure of paclitaxel. This is a large organic molecule, which would be typical for a naturally derived chemical. It does not dissolve well in water and it requires dissolving within a oil-based solute called cremaphore. This is relevant because many people are allergic to cremaphore and we require pre-medications in order to ver- avoid anaphylactic reaction. In fact, even with pre-medications such as steroids, benadryl, and H2 blockers, the administration of this medication was initially very challenging and required an inpatient hospitalization. As such, when it first came out, although it was found to be a very effective drug, indications were limited until doctor Elizabeth Eisenhower and colleagues developed a pre medication. And gradual infusional rate escalation protocol that allowed for this treatment to be given in an outpatient setting. With this, it has since become an essential component of our management of breast cancer, both in the localized and metastatic setting. These second-generation systemic therapies provided a 20% relative risk reduction compared to first-generation. So, in comparative meta-analyses, this gave a hazard ratio of 0.8. It's worth mentioning that there are some non-taxane com, um, containing second-generation. Regimens, and one of these is CAF, so cyclophosphamide, doxorubicin, and 5FU, given for a total of six cycles. But by far, in a way, the runaway winner in this generation was our ACT regimen, which is giving doxorubicin, cyclophosphamide for per, per four cycles, followed by paclitaxel for four cycles, each given every three weeks. There was an attempt to combine paclitaxel with doxorubicin at the same time. However, paclitaxel led to an increase in anthracycline toxicity. So we will never, we would never give a, we would never give a taxane at the same time as a anthracycline. There's also worth mentioning an anthracycline free second generation systemic therapy, which was developed a bit more recently. And this is paclitaxel and cyclophosphamide given every three weeks for four cycles. If you have a patient with cardiomyopathy that prevents them from receiving an anthracycline, this is a regimen you might reach for. I initially thought that given that it's only two two agents, it may be less toxic than an anthracycline-containing regimen. However, my experience with TC is that it's still a very toxic regimen, and I wouldn't necessarily consider it to be a, a light chemotherapy if you think someone's too frail to receive an anthracycline. Course. So, some practical considerations with paclitaxel is that it is a, it does require some premedications. So, if a patient is on an ACT type of regimen, it's worth keeping in mind as they approach their final cycle of AC to prepare and um, provide the necessary medications to, in advance of their first paclitaxel dose is these people will require 20 milligrams of dexamethasone both 12 hours and 6 hours prior to their infusion, given them orally. If for some reason the patient did not receive the dexamethasone prior to their systemic therapy, they would be at a higher risk for an infusion-based reaction. Infusion reactions with paclitaxel can present variable ways from full-blown anaphylaxis to other reactions that may include a rash, myalgias, subjective feelings of shortness of breath. And most chemotherapy centers will have a protocol in place for paclitaxel-based infusional reactions, and you should be familiar with yours before covering the chemotherapy suite. In order to try to limit the risk of anaphylaxis, often these um, infusions are started very slowly, and, and every 15 to 30 minutes are escalated in rate. If a patient can tolerate full-rate paclitaxel infusion, their subsequent cycle can be run over a shorter period of time, but usually the first dose will will take more than half a day. If I didn't mention already, the, the allergic reactions are not to Paclitaxel itself, but actually to Cremopore, the, the the solvent. The dose-limiting toxicity of Paclitaxel is neurotoxicity. And you'll find that there's both an acute and chronic complication of, um, of neurotoxicity. And usually, the acute will present itself as severe myalgias that may be proximal, as well as severe pain in the fingers and toes. My personal experience is that this has been exacerbated by soaking in hot water. So, you know, I recommend the people who are washing dishes to make sure to have rubber gloves on and to not soak in hot tubs for too long or baths for too long with their fingers and toes, especially during their course of paclitaxel. Sometimes these patients will even develop nail changes um, such as yellowing and brittle nails. As with platinum agents, most of this neurotoxicity will resolve, although there is a percentage of patients that may have long-term permanent neuropathy, and it's important to counsel patients on these and to be observing for it during the course of your treatment. You have to keep in mind, however, that this is with the intent of maximizing cure from breast cancer, and some level of toxicity is to be expected during the course of therapy. For those patients who are developing the severe proximal myalgias, your urge may be to reach for something like a Tylenol or NSAID to treat their pain. However, the most effective approach is actually going to be a steroid taper. And I've taken the approach of providing patients with a, a steroid taper as a purine um, at the first cycle for if they're receiving a high dose of Paclitaxel, which would be Paclitaxel given in every three week or every two week manner. The taper which I borrowed from my, my training institution is giving dexamethasone 8mg BID for two days, followed by 4mg BID for two days, followed by 4mg daily, then 2mg in stopping. For most of the patients who develop pain, this is an effective therapy. Okay, and moving on to the third generation. As with the second generation, the third generation adds an additional relative risk reduction of 20%. So once again, we're getting these small steps on top of our initial benefit that have led to greater outcomes overall. Just for, for context, so this, this additional 20% relative risk reduction is a absolute disease free survival of about 4% and an absolute overall survival of about 2% in, at the 10 year point. And the third generation chemotherapy regimens are intensive taxane and anthracycline regimens. Individual centers will have a different intensive regimen of choice where I trained the preferred agent was dose-dense AC and dose-dense paclitaxel. What dose-dense means is giving these agents closer together. So if you remember back to last episode with the cell kill hypothesis, ideally we want to administer our chemotherapy cycles as close together to continue to kill that proportion of cells before they've had a time to double in size again. The limiting factor with the first and second generation chemotherapy regimens was that we required recovery of the bone marrow. So neutropenia needs to recover because giving chemotherapy when a patient's neutropenic, which is to say their absolute neutrophil is less than 1.5, Puts them at high risk for an infection. We were we were able to circumvent this with the we were able to circumvent this with development of GCSF stimulating agents. So our filgrastim or the long acting pegfilgrastim, and in the dose dense regimen, we give the same doses of our AC and T, but give them every two weeks apart. Following each dose, we give either a, a short course of or a single dose of pegfilgrastim. I should mention that the AC component is the most myelosuppressive, so you may find that you run into the when you get into your dose dense paclitaxel component, you may not require that pegfilgrastim as much. If your patient comes for their second cycle of paclitaxel and has a white count in the twenties or thirties, you're probably safe to omit your next um, GCSF agent. Since this is our first time mentioning pegfilgrastim and filgrastim, I'll just. Briefly discuss the toxicities with this, which are primarily going to be bony pain. So patients can find, feel a, feel a hole, can feel pain in their bones diffusely. This is sort of an idiosyncratic reaction and patients don't necessarily always feel it on their first dose and may not even feel into a later dose. This is relevant because when patients get into pacotoxal, if they come to you with complaining of myalgias or proximal bony pain, it can sometimes be hard to differentiate. GCSF agent based pain does not seem to respond to steroids as well. Honestly, there's not great treatments for it, but some patient, um, some thought is that, um, antihistamines such as claridine or for a few days can, um, reduce the severity of symptoms. Another third generation regimen that I see is commonly used in the United States was, was pioneered by Dr. Spirano's Lampire paper that was published in the JCO. This was looking at AC followed by one of 4 taxane taxi-based regimens. So, this was a two by two trial, and it randomized patients into either weekly paclitaxel, Q3 weekly paclitaxel, weekly docetaxel, or Q3 weekly docetaxel. And in this trial, he found that weekly paclitaxel was better than Q3 weekly paclitaxel. He also found that weekly docetaxel was inferior to Q3 weekly docetaxel. Due to this trial, many patients have been given doxorubicin cyclophosphamide as a dose dense regimen, so every two weeks or four cycles, followed by weekly paclitaxel given for 12 weeks. A big question that has not been answered is whether dose dense paclitaxel is better than weekly paclitaxel. Although they have not been compa- compared to one another, my gut feeling is that they're probably similar in efficacy. It's worth considering the differences in toxicity and in the case of Dose tense paclitaxel, the patients get a lot more toxicity in the short term, such as severe myalgias, fatigue. Just contrasting that to our anthracycline component of regimen, where patients have mostly nausea and cytopenias. The weekly paclitaxel is much more toler much more well tolerated during the course of therapy. However, there's a higher risk of neurotoxicity. It also takes a, a few more weeks to complete. With the dose tense paclitaxel being every two weeks for four cycles, and then the weekly paclitaxel being twelve weeks. You will probably find that you'll. Prefer the agent that's most common in whatever site you are practicing in. One other third generation systemic therapy that is worth mentioning is FecD, so that's five FU, epirubicin, cyclophosphamide, followed by docetaxel given every three weeks for three weeks with the anthracycline half, and then three week um, for three cycles with the anthracycline half, and then three cycles for the docetaxel half. This regimen has a added benefit that has the fewest number of actual infusions. So only 6 total infusions compared to 8 infusions with the dose-dense ACT, and then 16 infusions for the weekly paclitaxel and AC dose-dense AC regimen. It's also equivalent. However, my personal inclination is still to use dose-dense AC and T, as this was what I um, was trained with. All right, and very quickly, just to cap off this discussion, I just wanted to briefly bring up the concept of adjuvant bisphosphonates. So bisphosphonates and other bone reabsorption agents such as denosumab have a clear role in the metastatic setting for breast cancer that's metastasized to the bones, as well as other metastatic bone diseases. As breast cancer's most common site of distant recurrence is within the bones, there was some interest in seeing whether or not phosphomates could help improve overall outcomes. There are multiple trials that were run looking at this in the adjuvant setting, and one of the EBCTCG meta-analyses accumulated data from 18,766 women who are treated with two to five years with these bisphosphonate agents, and they did find that there was a disease-free survival uh, benefit hazard ratio of about 0.94, and uh, overall breast cancer mortality has a ratio of about 0.91. This did meet borderline for significance. When breaking, looking at subgroups, the benefit was only seen in postmenopausal women, and guidelines do recommend consideration of adjuvant bisphosphonate in postmenopausal women with a high risk of recurrence, so patients who are candidates for systemic chemotherapy. Bisphosphonates, and we'll get into these in more detail later, but do have the risk of osteonecrosis of the bone, and you require a dental exam prior to initiation to ensure there's no teeth that will require extraction. There's also a risk of renal dysfunction, hypocalcemia, and infusion reactions. These are IV given medications, so would end up requiring for two to five years coming back to the clinic every six months for an infusion. The absolute benefit seems relatively small, and I think there's a question if this is you know truly, although statistically significant, whether or not it's clinically significant. And I personally don't recommend these agents in my patients. However, I I do keep in mind that if I'm putting them on AI, I'm increasing the risk for osteoporosis, and maybe if. Patients are already at a risk for fractures or have osteopenia. I'll have a low threshold to initiate one of these agents because there is a possible benefit and then there's the added benefit of um, protecting their bone health. Thanks for sticking with me for these last two um, discussions and I'll be accompanied once again with the wonderful Dr. Ryan Quinn uh, for our next episode and we're going to begin to, we're going to get into the weeds of the adjuvant hormone management of breast cancer. Bye for now. For more information, follow us on Twitter at TalkingTumors, or feel free to email us at TalkingAboutTumors at gmail.com. Please rate and review the podcast. We really appreciate it. And special shout-out to our friend John Kim for all of his musical talents. And he is the composer of the music that you're hearing right now. Talking about tumors is not medical advice. For medical advice, please contact your own healthcare provider. Opinions stated on this podcast are by the Ryan who said it and no one else. We have no financial disclosures, and this is done purely on our own time to the sake of our enjoyment of the field of medical oncology. Thank you for listening, and see you next time.